We like to be in control. Whether we're talking about money or health or time or public policies or spiritual beliefs or whatever else we want to preserve some measure of autonomy, some measure of influence, some measure of control. And that's a legitimate desire since our history has been littered with scandals and abuses and sometimes even crimes against humanity perpetrated by those who receive a blank check from their constituents. But as justifiable as our distrust of bureaucracy and powerful organizations and even oftentimes governments might be, the desire for autonomy and control can, pr can prove to be quite a difficulty when it comes to following Jesus. When Jesus calls to us, we must in so many ways surrender our control. And this is a reality that broke out of the world of theory and into the very lives of the first followers of Jesus in the gospel. If you have access to a Bible and you're not already there, I invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to Mark chapter 1. Here in Mark, there's a term that's important for our discussion today, and it's the term repentance. Repentance in the original Greek that the Bible, the New Testament anyway, was written in is the word metanoia. And metanoia means a transformed mind. It means a transformed mind. And the Hebrew that underlies that has to do with turning away and walking in a different direction. So this is repentance. It's not a, a, a feeling of remorsefulness necessarily. It's not an admission that we've done something wrong. That's not what John the Baptist was asking the people to do. He was asking them to change everything about themselves. The way they thought, the way they walked, the way they lived, everything. Repent. You're going in the wrong direction. John was saying, enter the waters of the Jordan River and be baptized for repentance. That God might transform you, that you might truly be able to walk differently than you presently are walking. And in that, John was saying, they would find forgiveness, which in the Greek means they would be set free. So that's what John was asking. And many Israelites came. And we're never told in the Gospel of Mark that they, the metanoia, the transformation of mind, actually happened for any of them. But they were seeking it. And that's important. And Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And when he did that, after having been baptized, we're told that the heavens were torn open, that the Spirit of God shot out of the tear in the heavens and into the body of Jesus, and the voice of God testified that God, Jesus was, in fact, God's Son. And then after having received the Holy Spirit, Jesus was driven out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. And that brings us to where we are now today. In John chapter, I mean in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And John was put in prison, after John was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, 
he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The call of Jesus to follow him revealed three things in the lives of his disciples in Mark. And the call of Jesus to follow him reveals three things in our lives today. And the first is this. When Jesus calls, the kingdom of God draws near. Look again at Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the gospel. That's Jesus' word. He says it everywhere he goes. What does it mean? Well, lots of folks have played around with the proper translation of the original Greek in verse 15, and it's not as clear-cut as you might think. Some have tried to argue that Jesus said, the kingdom of God has arrived, which means it's already here. Others have wanted to say it's breaking in or something like that. But I'm in agreement with those who favor the more traditional reading. The kingdom of God is drawing near. And it's because of this drawing near that Jesus calls his hearers to repent. They have to turn away from the lives they're living because the kingdom is coming. And that's supposed to be the good news, that the kingdom is coming. The coming of the kingdom was not entirely good news. It's sort of a mixed bag. Some of it was good, but some of it not. After all, Prior to the coming of the kingdom of God in the First Testament, another thing has to happen, and the Old Testament prophets called it the day of the Lord. It came before the kingdom could come, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a terrifying day in many respects. In the First Testament prophecies of Joel and Zephaniah, for instance, the day of the Lord was a day that was filled with judgment, in which both Israel and the rest of the nations of the earth were to be punished for their sin, for their self-obsessed decisions, their self-centered and destructive behaviors. So for these prophets, the day of the Lord was a day on which God would pour out His wrath on the faithless. And that's hardly good news, right? Which is probably why they were running to the Jordan River. But the day of the Lord wasn't all gloom and doom, and that's important to recognize too. According to many of the prophets, perhaps most significantly, the prophet Isaiah. The day of the Lord would usher in a time of peace and forgiveness. So it would start dark, but it would lead to light. The restoration of Israel, the healing of the rest of the nations of the earth. In one passage, Isaiah describes the kingdom of God in the following way. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Beautiful picture of the kingdom of God from Isaiah chapter 11. So what would an informed Israelite in Jesus' day have heard when Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was drawing near? 
most likely he would have heard that the judgment of God on all humanity was about to come. And afterward would come a time of peace unlike the world had ever before known. So that's good news. But it's good news on the heels of some pretty bad news, right? Which is why Jesus commends them to repent, to turn away from what they presently think, how they're presently living, how they're presently behaving. To reconsider all that they believe, all that they do, and all that constitutes their way of life. Why reconsider all of this? Because if the kingdom of God is drawing near, then God is coming. What happens when God comes? Well, it's a rare event in the First Testament. For those who think God came all the time in biblical times, it's a rare event. But if the testimonies of the prophets of Israel that have been preserved for us in the First Testament are to be believed, God's arrival has a tendency of turning things upside down. Not metaphorically, I mean literally. Whenever God has arrived personally in the First Testament, His arrival most often caused severe atmospheric and geological uh, disturbances, anomalies, I mean, horror. In the book of Exodus, His presence was manifested by a towering pillar of smoke and fire like a tornado. When God arrived in the book of Job, He came in the midst of a tornado, a whirlwind. And in 1 Kings 19, we're told that God's coming was preceded by a wind that tore the mountains apart, and it was followed by a great earthquake. When God comes, I mean the earth hemorrhages. And when Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was drawing near, that was tantamount to declaring that the day of the Lord was dawning and that the coming of God was imminent, and that had to be petrifying. In other words, the world was about to be turned upside down. A monster tornado was bearing down on the people, and in its wake, the wicked would be destroyed, and God's peace would follow afterward. When Jesus calls, the kingdom of God draws near. Now, of course, Jesus' hearers would have understood that quite differently than we now understand it, because we get to see the whole life and ministry of Jesus unfold in the Gospels, and we've lived for nearly 2,000 years since. So our vision is a bit different than theirs. They most likely would have thought when Jesus said that, that it was going to happen almost immediately. Within their own lifetime, the entire planet was going to be torn up, and that the kingdom of God was going to come. And we do believe that will really happen, but the life and ministry of Jesus reveals a bit of a wrinkle. The day of the Lord is apparently quite long, much longer than 24 hours. In fact, we're told in the scriptures that the day of the Lord dawned in the ministry of Jesus, but here we are 2,000 years later and the sun has not yet set on that day. Even so, Every time Jesus calls into an individual life or into a family or into a community, since the first time he spoke these words in the Middle Eastern region of Galilee, the kingdom of God has always approached those who hear. And that includes you and me when we've heard the call of God. And that call of Jesus into the lives of his disciples and into our lives is a promise of peace and hope. But it's also a warning of upheaval and of destruction and of judgment. Put simply, the call of Jesus will turn our lives and the lives of all who follow him upside down. 
Jesus described this upending force of the kingdom of God as repentance, this turning over of our lives as repentance, as the transforming of our minds, as the upending of what we think and what we say and what we do in this world. And this repentance flows out of the belief that the kingdom is truly arriving and that Jesus is its herald. Because the kingdom of God draws near when Jesus calls, when we hear his calling, we must reconsider all that we think and do and are. For no self-obsession, no evil will survive his coming. The kingdom that's coming is a kingdom of peace, and the self-obsessed will not inherit it. So when Jesus calls, the kingdom of God approaches. Our second point is this. When Jesus calls, Jesus has chosen. Return with me to Mark chapter 1, now in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now that fish for people thing has everything to do with the day of the Lord, because the prophet said that on the day of the Lord, God would send nets out to catch people to spare them from judgment. So there's a lot going on in the passage. I can't pursue it all. But I want to focus on Jesus' behavior in these verses because it's quite unusual either for a Jewish rabbi or for a wisdom teacher among the Greek people in Jesus' day. According to the historical records to which we have access, rabbis who distinguished themselves as experts in Jewish tradition and teaching and as competent interpreters of the Hebrew Bible, they were sought after by disciples. People asked to be their disciple. They didn't go out and ask people to follow them. But in all the Gospels of our New Testament, and most certainly here in Mark, Jesus took the initiative, both in seeking out his disciples and in asking them to follow him. For Mark, those who authentically follow Jesus, they don't begin their journey with Jesus by searching for him. They begin their journey with Jesus when Jesus searches for them and invites them to follow him. When Jesus calls into the life of a person, It's because Jesus has chosen the person that he is calling. I believe that the Bible teaches that humans have a free will. That is, that our choices are not inevitably determined by forces outside of ourselves. However, it would be foolish to argue that we are always free, or that we are completely free. Quite frankly, it seems clear that we're not always free to do other than what we do. Not always. Many of the choices in our lives are made for us. And it seems unwise to argue that our lives are completely within our control. Our lives are mixed bags of fairly free choices and profoundly conditioned choices that have somehow coalesced into our present selves. Our experience tells us that we're sort of free and sort of not. In considering this reality in light of what I read in the Gospels, I would suggest that anyone at any given time is not simply free to follow Jesus. Each time we pick up a Bible, or listen to a sermon, or receive an invitation to follow Jesus, not all of those are equal in their potentiality. Many times that will happen and we would not be able to say yes even if we thought we wanted to. 
In fact, I would argue that the Gospels insist that for us to be truly free to follow Jesus, Jesus must choose to call us to follow him. And that doesn't happen every day. It doesn't necessarily happen when an evangelist or a pastor or a parent or a friend thinks it should. Jesus must choose to invite us. And when Jesus calls, Jesus has chosen both us and the moment in which he calls us. I'm one who believes that each person will receive this call of Jesus at some point in his or her life. I don't pretend to know what form or shape that call will take, particularly in places to which the good news of Jesus has not yet come. I don't pretend to know it. But I believe that the Christian scriptures require this call to come at least once. But that's not to say that I believe people will get lots of these calls in their lifetimes. Not necessarily. Whatever the circumstance in which you sense Jesus calling you to follow him, whether you're reading a Bible or listening to a sermon online or sitting in a church service as we are today or talking with someone on the street or over coffee or praying alone in your room at night, whatever the occasion in which Jesus calls you to follow him, he has chosen you in that moment to be invited and your freedom may only exist at that time in that place. I believe that moment, whenever it may be, was or is or will be the most important moment of your life. And that moment of freedom, when Jesus calls you to follow him, is a moment in which Jesus is making you free to make a choice that, it, that will fundamentally alter the whole of your life. And the choice is for that moment. Only God knows if he will call again. Jesus' call comes to each of us differently. No one can foretell how you will experience Jesus' call for you to follow him. But I believe I can assure you that the gravity of the moment will not be lost on you. Somehow you will recognize that the decision before you represents the decision of your life. Because when Jesus calls, Jesus has chosen. Like Jesus' disciples, you must recognize that in that moment when Jesus calls, you have been elected to receive his invitation. How will you respond? When Jesus calls, the kingdom of God approaches. And when Jesus calls, Jesus has chosen. Our final point today is this. When Jesus calls, we are initially invited simply to follow. Look back with me at Mark chapter 1 now in verse 18. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. With the invitation of Jesus comes a potentiality that is unnatural. We're not hardwired to follow God, or to hear God's voice, or to discern the path he would have us walk. The prophets of Israel in the book of Genesis explain this human deafness as rooted in the decision of our earliest human ancestors to put their own logic and their own reason and their own decision-making over against the words God had spoken to them. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament describes humanity as being enslaved to sin, to self-obsession. 
what these writers all insist is that for humans to hear the call of God again, God must enable us to hear him. Our ability to hear the call of Jesus to follow him is a consequence of the work of God in our lives. That work of God in our lives through people and circumstances and within our very hearts that opens our eyes and our ears to hear the call of Jesus. And somehow all of that comes together to allow us to hear and to provide us a choice that does not come to us by birth or by nature. We are given by God's grace a supernatural capacity to choose a quite unnatural path, the path to follow Jesus. And that choice is not necessarily at first a choice to be saved. That's not what Jesus said to his disciples. None of the disciples, when Jesus first called them, were making a decision to embrace Jesus as God or as the Lord of their lives. That decision would come later when Jesus called to them again after his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' disciples were not first invited to believe in him. They were only initially invited to follow him. That was the choice they were given, and that's the choice that they made. Before they even knew who he was, he invited them to follow him. I think this is important to recognize, church, because some who might be curious about Jesus are refusing to follow him because they're not yet ready to make a a final decision about his significance. But like Jesus' own disciples, complete certainty about the significance of Jesus is not necessary in order for us to begin to follow him. In fact, it's only after we begin to follow him that we, through God's grace, might actually become ready to make a decision about him. So how does one follow without fully deciding on the significance of Jesus? We begin to spend time with those who have decided. And we begin to read the testimonies of those who he has authorized to speak to us on his behalf, the prophets and apostles in our Bible. And as we come better to understand what Jesus taught and how Jesus lived, following him implies that we are committing ourselves, at least for this time of discipleship, to do likewise. To live as he lived. To think in the ways he's asking us to think. That's what repentance is. And this is the first call of Jesus to us. Whether we're children or adults, when we first hear his voice, he simply asks us to follow. And his first disciples made the choice to leave their former lives behind and follow him. They repented. Have you? Will you? And after we followed him for a time, he will call to us again. As he did to his disciples once they witnessed his resurrection from the dead. Actually, there are many times in the gospel where he sort of reinvites them to follow him. And on that day, however long away or near it may be, he will call on you not simply to repent, but to believe. But on that day, he will have prepared us to make that decision as well. I don't believe he'll make our belief inevitable, but I do believe that as we follow, he will make our belief possible. He did it for his own disciples. We're not in control when it comes to God's call on our lives. When Jesus calls, the kingdom of God draws near and our lives are about to be turned upside down. That's the weight of the moment when Jesus calls. 
Neither are we in control when it comes to the moment of Jesus calling. We can't make it happen. We can't force him to call us. We can't manipulate the spirit to do it. We can't manufacture the moment in which Jesus calls into our lives. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he's chosen us in that moment. And he's prepared us for it. And only he can choose it. And we're not in control when it comes to the final belief that we must place in Jesus in order to be saved. Only after following him will God, through his grace, create the capacity for that faith in us. And only God can choose the moment in which Jesus calls us personally, not simply to repent, to follow him, but to believe. Is Jesus calling to you today?